And um, so we're going to start with a really dark question. Um, cause, and this is like probably the darkest sermon I've, I've preached so far. So it just gets worse from here. Warning. And if you have kids, send them over to the other side. So here we go. What current news reports has surprised you in seeing the human capacity for evil? All right, so we're just going to go ahead, break off into small groups of three or four. If you're in a couple, we'd love for you to include someone around you and uh, make sure everyone has a group. And then I'll give you guys three to five minutes. And um, yeah, I'd love for us just to kind of share, not just the event, but kind of what has scarred you and, and you can't unsee anymore. All righty. All right, check, check. Thanks for sharing, everyone. And we'll definitely tackle some of the things you guys uh, talked about, and I'm sure a lot of things come to mind, especially as we look at the last two weeks. If you haven't been with us uh, for the last few weeks, we are going through the Bible and looking at the Bible as a story, as a narrative, which we believe that it's primarily meant to be. And so instead of having the Bible be a Google search, right, like dating and see what the Bible says, or this magic eight ball where we just flip it open and point to a scripture and hope that it shows us who to marry. We hope that we could read the Bible well and um, that it would become the story that unfolds, sharing with us uh, who we were and, and how God created us in the world, um, what our purpose was, what happened, uh, why we live in the world we live in today that's flawed and fractured, and then also this underlining redemptive story that God's writing uh, throughout human history. And then also, I think really the really exciting part of scripture is that it ends with um, the final chapter of our, of our uh, time, our era on, the earth, on this earth. It ends with the future. And so we get to see that as well. So last week we spent some time um, in Eden. Uh, this is where, how God's created the earth. And, you know, a big question is like, why would a good God create a world like this, like all the ways that you've described it and you observed it? And the answer is that he doesn't. He creates a world that is perfect. He creates us to be able to interact with him in this intimate and, and personal way where we would be able to see him face to face, where we'd be able to walk next to him, where we would be able to be tutored by him and have this really vibrant relationship. And now it's, it's clouded and separated. We, but the way God meant it to be was this intimacy with him, but ultimate, also intimacy with each other. It says in Genesis chapter 2 that Adam and Eve were naked, but they felt no shame. So there was a sense that we could be, it was this external um, symbol and reality of this internal thing where we could be totally vulnerable with each other and not, not feel like we would be hurt, where we could be in a society where people just loved each other. And you could walk up to someone and not be suspicious of them. When people say hi to you, you're not thinking either they're selling me something, scamming me, or trying to rob me, right? Or maybe asking me for my time, but probably not. <laughs> it's usually the first three. And so um, that's how we were meant to interact with each other. And also there was this divine purpose that God had given humanity to be his image bearers, to be representatives of him on earth that we would continue to create other worshipers through childbearing and that we would um, bring Eden to the rest of the earth as we managed creation so that everything would be under God's kingdom and God's rule. But as you can see, there's this tree, the fruit of uh, knowledge of good and evil. 
And I believe God placed that there as a way for us to have functional freedom so that every moment we're continuing to reside under his reign and rule instead of choosing to be God and choosing to be rule. Because if we don't have freedom, we can't have love. Love is built on top of freedom. And so that's why this tree is there. And eventually Satan through uh, the serpent deceives Eve and Adam. And the line that gets them is he says, you will be like God. And then we have this downward spiral, and, and we described it last week as this like zombie apocalypse or this like end of the world, um, you know, no structure, and and everyone's evil, and and we can't even comprehend what it's like for us to have that kind of Eden lifestyle. Like, um, and we don't just go from like eating fruit to crushing roly polies and throwing kittens, right? Like. The very next thing we do when we rule and when we reign is that Cain kills Abel. And we have the first concept, the first picture of what it looks like for man to reign, for, for us to take control. Every time we do what's opposite of God, every time we say, we don't want you, Lord, to be king and ruler, we want our own way, we're doing evil. Because God is totally good, and God is perfect, and, and he's fully loving. And so anything outside of him is hateful and evil and not good. And that's what it looks like for man to reign. Um, when I think about, okay, and then we're, we're off to Noah. And this is probably one of the darkest stories, I think, in Scripture. And it really shows us, the depth of our depravity. It really shows us the depth of our evil and the righteousness and judgment of God encapsulated in the story, but to maybe the most extreme so that we could see uh, our capacity for evil and what judgment truly looks like. And I think we've contemplated our evil. We, we see it kind of um, spark up in different places in our society. But when we step back and we think about what it would be like if social constructs, if government laws were, was removed, how evil we would become. And so you have, you know, movies, uh, TV shows like The Walking Dead, which I refer to every Sunday, or Breaking Bad, I refer to one of them. And in Walking Dead, you know, the zombies aren't a real problem after seasons one and two, right? It's the people. It's how evil the people become. And this is another apocalyptic movie called The Road, probably one of the darkest movies I've ever seen, extremely realistic. It's this father and son trying to survive this earth that has been totally scorched. There's no life. Um, plants and animals are dead. And, um, and either pe people have become scavengers for food that um, were canned or, or in the past, um, or they've become cannibals. And I, I think we can sit back and imagine this world without structure and quickly conceive how evil we can become. If, if we just act out and there were no consequences, what would our society truly be like? And I think it begs the question, how good are we really? Um, and how, how firm is our moral fabric outside of these social constructs. This um, 
psychologist asked a question um, in the University of North Dakota, and this kind of has to do with the rape case that happened in uh, the Stanford with the Stanford student. And what she discovered was that as she was um, as she was surveying students, one out of three college men admit that they might rape a woman if they knew that no one find out and that they wouldn't face any consequences. And I think that it just really speaks to the evil that resides in our hearts. And I think we can take this and say, well, I'm the two of three, right? Or I'm the woman, so I'm not even included in this study. Or we could look at, you know, zombie apocalypse and say, I would like give everything away. But if we really took inventory of our worst thoughts, um, our 15 worst thoughts, if we really sat back and took inventory of the worst things we've done in our life that no one has seen, that we can't even give words to, we would know that it's not just them, it's not just another time period, it's not just a hypothetical world, but that evil resides pretty deep inside of us. And the problem with evil is that it's tied to humans. That's the worst problem with evil, and that's why it's impossible for God to destroy evil without destroying us, right? How, how would God remove evil from our, from our lives without destroying us and without disrupting free will? I think, I think the, those are our only two options. And that's what we kind of see in, this, in, in Noah. And as we venture into this really dark world, um, here's my goals, okay? I just want to lay it out. I was going to put this at the end, but I think we're all angry at me at this point. So, so this is why we're going to super dark places. It's because um, the, book of Noah, uh, the story of Noah does it. But also, we need to understand the depth of our sinfulness. Because if we don't understand how deeply sinful we are, the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus will also be shallow, right? If I'm a pretty good person, then Jesus only forgives the other not-so-good part of me. Um, if, I'm, if I'm mostly good, if I'm 90% good, then Jesus just forgives the 10% that's bad. So when we think about the depth of our sin, it allows us to expand the width, the breadth, of God's grace and forgiveness and sacrifice. But not only does our, our understanding of sinfulness need to increase, we also need to think deeply about God's holiness and his justice. And that's what the book of Noah does in a truncated story. And we don't talk about either very often, right? Everyone's good. Look inside of you. Be good, right? We have that, that idea, and so that's why I'm taking this on this very really dark, self-reflective journey and we think that maybe God's, his view of justice is limited as well. You know, that um, because we're not so bad, God's justice is not so harsh. It's just a slap on the wrist. It's just our name on the chalkboard. It's just a timeout. But if we think of his absolute holiness in acting absolute justice to our deepest evil, what does that look like and what does that mean? And I think as we expand in both areas, we need 
the cross and the grace of God to expand with us as well. Or else we start to hide in shame, or we start to deny our evil, or we start to belittle God's grace and justice. Um, And none of those things would be an accurate view of God. And so in the book of Noah, it really just kind of puts it out there right away. Um, In the most, in the highest degree, the depths of man's sin and the height of God's holiness. Uh, Next slide. Sorry, my clicker. Oh, did you press it or did I press it? I pressed it. Okay, thanks. Um, All right, so... Here's verse 5. This is how God describes the condition of the human race as they have progressed without very much government, without very much law. It's pretty much every man for himself type of world, right? So different from the world we live in. Um, God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on this earth and that every inclination of the thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's pretty absolute. Every single thought at every point of of time was only evil. That's That's the world that Noah was living in. That's the view. That's the That's what God saw going on on this earth. And that's what happens when man rules instead of him. Every inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. And at that point, they get to act out on their evil, right? I I just imagine a society filled with rape, filled with murder, filled with violence, without any repercussions. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on, on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So we see in verse 6 that as he sees this, there's this emotional response. He's not hardened. He's not, he doesn't just remove himself. He doesn't just close one eye. But that there was this deep sorrow and grief as he saw the human condition. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, For I regret I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we see the depths of man's sin in that every inclination all the time was only evil. And then we see God's righteousness translated into justice. He's going to execute the whole human race. That's pretty brutal. And yet I think there's a part of us that wants justice. When we see evil occur, like with the Stanford rape and the idiot father saying like 20 minutes, of, you shouldn't be pe- penalized your whole life for something you do in 20 minutes. But I'm like, you could kill someone in like less than two minutes. Anyways, um, we, there's an outcry, right? On social media, in our hearts, in, in the way that we, we see this judge, we want to remove him. And, and I think here, there's this outcry of justice that's happening. But I think what, what we don't want, what we are afraid of, is when justice is invoked on us. So when we see it on other people, we want, I want this guy to go to jail like for decades, right? If not his whole life. But then I don't want to examine my own heart and say, man, God, if you, if you took justice on me, I'd be a little, I'd be a little screwed. What I like in, in the end of this passage is that 
Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. It says that he's blameless, he's a righteous man, he's walking faithfully with the Lord. And so, so as the earth is totally corrupt and full of violence, um, God says to Noah, I'm going to kill everybody, but I'm going to save you uh, from the earth. I'm going to save you from the flood. And so he starts giving him instructions to build this ark, as you guys all know, to put every, uh, two of every kind of bird and animal into it. And then um, and Noah did everything that God commanded him to do. You know, I, th- I think about the story, and I see Noah as someone who has faith in the Lord, and as God looks over the earth, he sees the one man who is good. And so when he's like, enacting justice, he does it not in a temper tantrum, not like closing his eyes, just nuking the earth. He does it with precision and precisely, and there's this one man who he saves. I think about Sodom and Gomorrah as he burns two cities to the ground. He he starts this dialogue with Abraham, and he says, will you spare the city with 50, with 10, with 5? And there was no righteous man to be found, no righteous people to be found. And the, and the only family that did believe in God, he sends in angels to drag out of the city. So God here is fully just, but there's this side of him that has, that because he's good and because he has power, he has to act when there's injustice, right? Um, and this is what happens. And it's kind of brutal, And I think that we need to think about this God as well, because we don't. And it's it's hard to preach today. I want to talk about a God who just loves you. I want to talk about a God who's just going to support your life and make you wealthy. You know, I never do that, but (laughs) because I'm poor. Um, And and your best friend and full of grace and love. and, And those are all true. But I feel like not, that that has to be true under our, us deeply contemplating our evil and sin and, ha- and God's justice, or else all of those things lose value immensely. So man, there's this God who reigns over the earth and enacts justice to every human. He rarely steps in, right? So when I see this flood, I'm like, man, it's brutal, but I wonder how bad it was. Because there's so many times where I'm like, God, why didn't you just strike him down? When I, think, when I hear stories about uh, Nazis and, and Hitler, when I, I've read the, a documentary on one of the most grotesque child abuse cases in America, I'm just like shaking my fist at God. I can't help it. And I'm just like, God, why didn't you strike this person down? And so a part of us wants that justice, and then when we see it, sometimes we're like shaking our fists at God, like that was too harsh. But I, have, I believe that when he actually acts on earth, that it's, this somehow is worse than the worst I've seen when he doesn't act. Does that make sense? Hope it, hope it makes sense. Okay. Um, we see that Noah was saved not because he was a righteous person by his works, not because he never sinned, not just because he obeyed God, but because he had faith in God. 
that it was his faith that condemned the world and be, made him an heir of righteousness. And out of his faith, he, he was blameless. Out of his faith, he had a relationship with God. And Noah spent about 100 years building this ark. It was two and a half, or one and a half football fields long. Next slide. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. All right. And during that time, we see that God gives them 100 years to repent. So again, when you look at the Old Testament and there's these things that God does in judgment of others, it's because there's this buildup of evil in which God cannot do anything but act out of justice. And here God, he spends 100 years um, building this ark, and it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and yet no one listened to him. And then at the end of that time, Noah walks into the ark, and um, God shuts the door. God shuts him in, and, the, and water starts to emerge. And this ark is the symbol of God's provision and protection for, from his wrath, from his judgment for people who have their faith in him. But for, every, for the rest of uh, those who were being judged, like, like a Supreme Court justice handing down a verdict, they were destroyed. We see um, this being the decreation of the earth, right? So in seven days, God creates the earth. And during this 140 days, we see the reversal of that, that on the sixth day, there's life uh, for humans um, and for animals. And in, the, in this flood, we see this life, this breath of life being snuffed out. In creation, we see God separating the sky and the ocean, and we see uh, the waters and land being separated. And here we see that water is immersing from the land and from the sky and flooding the whole earth. And just like in Genesis 1, verse 1, the whole earth is covered with water, and that's how decreation ends, that the whole earth is covered with water again, and there's this little ark floating around with life in it. And then we have the recreation of the earth um, at the end of the story. God, sent, uh, through wind, the waters start to disperse, and the wind is one of the representations of the Spirit. So again, we're kind of going back to Genesis 1, where the Spirit is roaming the earth of, of filled with water. And then the, earth, the water starts to, starts to subside. Uh, the ark sits on a mountain for a little bit. Noah sends out a raven and then uh, a dove three different times. The second time, the dove brings back an olive, olive branch, which represents like peace again, peace with God. And then on the third day, the, bird, uh, the, the dove doesn't return. So that means that there's water, or the water has subsided and they could come out of the ark. And so God calls Noah out of the ark, and all the animals and creatures move alongside of the ground, and the birds and everything that moved on the land came out of the ark, one after another. And then it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord, taking some of the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. 
even though every inclination of the human's heart are evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. All right. Uh, oh, no, I have another slide that got lost. So Noah kind of becomes the new Adam. He comes out of this ark in this kind of virgin world again, and God gives him the same blessing. That's the, the passage I lost amongst other slides. But he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And he commissions Adam or uh, Noah to do what Adam was to do as well. And then he blesses the earth. And we see God's grace and provision over not only Noah, but the human race. Now, we're going back to the slide um, because when we contemplate the depth of our sin and when we think about the righteous judgment of God, it applies to all of us. You know, we believe that the story ends with all of us standing before our maker and giving an account for our lives. And we have like a different bar, you know? Like I look around the room, I'm like, all of you guys are really good people. I, re I really think that, you know? And everyone kind of thinks that, right? Even the people in prison are like, I'm pretty good. Like I, still, I stole something, but I didn't punch anyone. And then the guy who punched someone says, I'm, I punched someone, but everyone punches someone once in a while. I didn't like rape somebody. And the rapist says, oh, I'm okay. I didn't kill anyone. And everyone kind of thinks they're good because we live in this this morality that's usually relative to us and if, if expanded relative to the society we live in. But God has a totally different moral bar. Uh, it's kind of scary to think about his view of morality. Him being perfect and righteous, he gives us a glimpse of this. When Jesus says that if you looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery. And if you hate somebody, you've committed murder. And I think some of that is having the bar so high in terms of attention, but maybe other parts of it is saying, if you could commit adultery, you would have. And if you could commit murder in the right circumstance, you probably would have as well. And so what the Bible says, what Jesus is saying is that all of us deserve death. All of us deserve to be wiped out, that the evil in our heart is so evil that we are under God's judgment. And it's really scary. Um, we all deserve to be separated from him and to be judged for our sins. I mean, when I think about my life, when I think about the most evil things I've done, the most even, oh, evil thing I've partook in, the most evil thoughts I've had, um, it makes me never want to, like, you know, be your friend or preach. I mean, it's pretty dark. But I think, again, if we all take inventory of it and we own it and we say that's part of us too, it's pretty dark. Um, and then there's God's holiness again. And as he sees us, if we are all murderers and adulterers, then we deserve death and punishment. Um, if we remove all of the social constructs and we can conceive ourselves doing all kinds of evil to survive or to protect someone, or to take advantage of someone, we, we can start to contemplate that we deserve to be executed. And there's this philosopher who said that 
if God is real, he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be able to live after seeing the human condition because his heart would break. And then this preacher says, and his heart did break. Jesus comes down to earth in the depth of our depravity. Jesus comes down to earth taking the, judge, the highest form of judgment that God can give. And we see him hung on a cross. We see him whipped. We see him executed. We see a spear go through his side and literally puncture and break apart his heart. And so there's, I think when we think about our sin, we, we want to deny it. and We get angry at the preacher, you know, or... We, we say, hey, we're not that bad. When we look at God's judgment, we say it's his fault. But what if we put our eyes on Jesus and say that there's actually this person, this God actually loves us so much that he doesn't just leave us in our sin. He doesn't just stand in judgment for us, but he pulls the two together with his left and right arms hanging on the cross. And he says, I'm going to take the worst of your sin. I'm going to take the highest form of judgment in execution, and I'm going to pay for it all. My son is going to die for you. That's the whole Christian story, that it looks unflinchingly at ourselves and our nature and says, man, we're sinful. And even the good parts of us are tainted. It looks at this God and says, he's scary. He's scary because we're sinful and he's good. But it looks at the cross and says, our God loves us so much that he doesn't close his eyes to our sin. He doesn't diminish his righteousness and his judgment. But he, he sacrifices himself for us so that every person can enter into his family. Every person can be inspired by his love to become good, to have our hearts realigned to him, to have him rule over us instead of us ruling over ourselves. Every person can be a part of his kingdom family, can be in heaven, not because of what we've done, but because we've trusted in Jesus and what he's done. That's the whole thing. And Noah is just this truncated version of all of that in the most, like, in-your-face way, the most flagrant evil with the most divine justice met with someone who trusted God, and he puts him safely into his arms. So I wonder if we're going to, you know, I, I just kind of think about, like, whether we're willing to do this thing. Um, yeah, whether we're willing to say, man, like, I really need God. I'm not good enough. As we look at the communion table, I hope that we could come to it with a, a different perspective, you know, that the cross would expand in our lives, that we, we wouldn't have to hide our evil from God or, or say that we're, we're good because we've done all these other things, but that we could let the cross touch even the darkest parts of us.
And I hope that as we go to the communion table today, we can really see the wrath of God. But instead of placing it on us, he places it on his son. That it's his body that was broken for us. It's his blood that was shed. And we partake it and say, that was for me. And I have no place in this story except to say that that was for me. God, we come to you this morning, and we know that this isn't a very user-friendly message. Um, whether we're Christian or not, it's, it's not fun to think about not just other people's evil, but our own. And it's really scary, and um, it seems hateful to think about your justice. Even though we want it for others, we feel like we don't, we don't deserve it on ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that um, you would help us to really grapple with both and that as we do, the grace of God, the sacrifice of your son would expand immensely. That we would, we would be convinced that you needed to be executed for us but still astonished and humbled that you would allow yourself to do that. That even Noah um, sacrificed this burnt offering as a symbol of you being sacrificed on the cross to satisfy the judgment of the Father against us. Hey guys, um, it's just super easy to become Christian. There's no membership fee. There's no church attendance, uh, you know, thing. All you have to do t t today is just to say, man, God, I've messed up in some way. You know, maybe we're not willing to say we're all evil. Um, and, and all of us do bear his image and have good in us. But to just say, man, I've done something that's evil. And I need you to forgive me. I need, you, uh, I need you to forgive me, Jesus, and I want to live for you. That's as easy as it gets. And after that, he realigns our heart. He lives inside of us. He allows us to be good, not to earn anything, but just because he starts to change us. So this morning, if that's you, I would love for you just to kind of pray that, just to say that to the Lord. And maybe you've been... You know, everyone sees you as Christian, but in your heart, you know that something's missing, that the songs are empty and you're still trying to rule your own life. And I'd encourage you just to pray that as well. Say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sin? I just surrender my life to you, every part of it. Please rescue me. All right, as we go into worship, we'd love for us to take communion together.